Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. Delighted to welcome you to this online event. I'm Ruth Hannon. I'm the Joint Lead for the People and Places Programme at the RSA. So get comfy whilst I introduce our fabulous panel, a group who bring together thinking on well-being in cities, participation and how this affects our lives. I'd like to introduce Leila McKay, who is Director of Policy at the NHS Confederation and founder of the Centre for Urban Design and Mental Health. She comes with experience of the World Health Organization and the World Bank from a background in medicine, international public health and health systems policy. Leila will be telling us about her brilliant new book, Restorative Cities, Urban Design for Mental Health and Wellbeing. Our second speaker is Samantha Taminimula, who I have the honor of working with as a researcher at the RSA. She's recently been leading on our work looking at the impact of resident participation on people's well-being in Birmingham. Samantha's background is designing and conducting research on complex social issues, and her background includes working on people's experience of migration and youth engagement in politics. And finally, Hamza Tulzal, who is a, a Labour councillor for the Queen's Park Ward and a Shadow Cabinet member at Westminster Council. Hamza was elected in 2018, becoming the youngest ever councillor at 18. Previously, Hamza was a member of the Youth Parliament and works to represent young people and engage them in making changes to their neighbourhoods to design happy, healthy places for people to live. So let's get going. Um, please join in the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RSA Cities or in our YouTube chat. So Leila, Hamza, Samanthi, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'd like to kick off, first of all, sort of the reason we've, we've come together for this event, to ask Leila to tell us a little bit about um, the ideas that are, that are in your book, Leila. So if I could hand over to you, that would be wonderful. Brilliant. Thank you. And it's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So essentially, I um, wrote this book with my co-author, Jenny Rowe, because essentially there was a big need for it. Uh, I've been running the Centre for Urban Design and Mental Health for five or six years now. And almost almost every week, somebody emails and says, gosh, you know, urban design, mental health, we like the concept, but where, where's the evidence? Can somebody bring together the evidence and turn it into really practical explanations of what can we actually do that will have an impact on people's mental health and well-being? Not just, you know, you might have a hunch that it might be helpful, but actually, where's the proof? Where are we going to get the value? And that, for me, was the inspiration behind uh, creating this book. So um, here it is, <laughs> Restorative Cities. And um, the way that we have set it up is that, first of all, we've defined the concept of restorative cities, and then we... Uh, talk about the, the various components of that. So if you think about the definition, it's pretty simple. Uh, we think of restorative cities as a concept that puts mental health, wellness and quality of life at the forefront of city design. And um, the, the research that we've done, which has come from health, it's also come from uh, you know, environmental psychology, from neuroscience, from engineering, from geography, from architecture, town planning, all sorts of different, uh, different specialties have come together to figure out how can certain settings foster recovery from mental fatigue, um, reduce the risk of developing um, or recovering or improving the opportunity to recover from depression, stress, anxiety, 
um, all the way through to things um, like how does it impact on ADHD or dementia? And essentially the question is how can planners and designers use that knowledge to design cities that better support mental health and well-being? So That's you want to tell you want me to tell you about about the seven components yeah that would be really good kind of because I know in the book you break it down into sort of seven pillars that underpin this so yeah if you could tell us about that that'd be wonderful absolutely so the the, the first one is the green city that's probably the the component that has the most historical evidence behind it how do you bring nature into the city and how can that have an impact on mental health well, the research tells us it can reduce depression and stress, it can improve brain function, it can uh, reduce the severity of symptoms of all sorts of things, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, ADHD, dementia, and it also has benefits. So, for example, reducing heat stress in cities that are affected by that, improving sleep quality. And, you know, the, the impact of, of the green space and people's mental health is obviously modified by all sorts of factors that, that that are really important. So the amount, the accessibility, how far it is from your home is really important, for example. Um, whether it's just that you can see uh, nature, whether it's that you're immersed in nature, the biodiversity is actually quite important. Having just one type of tree, for example, um, is gonna be less beneficial than having that complexity. Um, and you know, um, I think that COVID-19 has very much shed a light on, on the benefits of nature as well. So that's, that's been really interesting, but it's also shed a light on the disparities in access to nice nature that, that has those mental health benefits. So that, that's, that's pillar number one, which is the green city. The blue city, um, that is about water. Again, there's a huge long history of how water is good for, for mental health and well-being. Uh, you know, all sorts of uh, spas and healing properties of water have been spoken about throughout the years. Uh, the, the science tells us that some of the benefits are because of the increased opportunity for fascination and curiosity and interaction. <laughs> you know, you can hear it, smell it, see it, touch it, taste it if you want. So yeah, it's, it's essentially an incredibly um, exciting opportunity to improve mental health in the city by just making the most of those water spaces and of course um, also making use of the spaces around them uh, so walkways and um, opportunities for cycling and opportunities for socialization etc um, so but you know what is really important of course is that um, the quality of that water and the space around it is really important Nobody's really benefiting from stagnant, dirty, polluted water or, you know, the places that you might, you might stand near that water. The third one is the sensory city. So um, science tells us that there are all sorts of ways in which senses can be harnessed to um, exert positive impact on mental health. But when you think about cities, actually, what you mostly hear about is senses in the context of complaints. So, you know, um, some kind of noise that's causing a nuisance or some kind of smell that people are unhappy about. Um, but there's this real opportunity to actually focus on what are the senses that can give us a sense of belonging, that can um, give us a sense of being away and restoration, like, you know, positive soundscapes, bird noises, things like that. And then visual complexity is really interesting. It's, it's one of the things that interests me the most. Um, it might actually hold a bit of a key to reducing depression. Um, 
So, you know, if you walk past a block that's just one big supermarket or whatever it may be that has no particular features on the whole wall of the block, that puts you at more risk of having, having thoughts that are associated with depression. Whereas if you have uh, lots of little smaller shops, um, they're quite inviting, there's things to look at, they're quite complex, that can be much more beneficial for your mental health. So number four is the neighbourly city. So that is about how can we use urban design to build stronger social networks, uh, help people develop these strong supportive relationships. And these can be of all, all sorts. So one opportunity that we often talk about in urban design is bumping places, you know, places that um, are good at instigating impromptu encounters with people. So people that you might often see just to nod to at the market or a coffee shop or a dog park, um, uh, walking along the street. Uh, obviously, as I mentioned before, it is quite beneficial to have these smaller shops that are available. If you're walking between shops or facilities, you're much more likely to see other people in your neighbourhood and maybe even nod to them than you are if you're just driving from place to place. But you can also design all sorts of things in the urban environment to improve social interaction, like housing, for example, parks, community gardens, urban farming opportunities, all those sorts of things, obviously, um, catering to the sorts of different public and semi-public spaces that people want to use. Fifth one is the active city. As you might not be surprised to know, the active city gets a ton of research, and that's because it's so strongly linked to physical health. So we hear a lot about how you can design cities to improve uh, active transport, so walking, cycling, that sort of thing, um, improving the infrastructure, improving the facilities that helps people be able to do that. And what's really important to know is it's not just about physical health. Um, active city can also really improve your mental health, all sorts of ways. It can reduce depression and anxiety, it can improve your stress regulation, um, improve your brain health, your memory functioning, all of those um, are really important factors in mental health. Um, so yeah, and I guess that that's quite linked to another factor we have, which is probably one of the newer factors when you think about urban design, which is the playable city. I think we all know that you know, play is in integral to child well-being, physical, social, cognitive, emotional development, but What's really important here is that actually the concept of playability is important for all ages. Um, and that's not, not just children. You can design all sorts of opportunities for adolescents, for adults to interact with their environments, whether that's what they call pure play contact, contexts, like a playground, or other playable contexts, like interactive art exhibitions or parker um, settings, those sorts of things. The final attribute, number seven, is um, the inclusive city. So we interpret that as design in the city that makes everyone feel that they belong and that they can use it and that they're welcome. All ages, genders, race, ethnicities, sexual orientations, socioeconomic um, status, the full diversity of physical, sensory, cognitive needs and abilities. And we know that urban design has in the past and probably to this day contributed to segregation and exclusion and prejudice in cities. And that has a real impact on people's mental health. It can affect their self-esteem, their dignity, their independence, their ability to actually make use of all that the city has to offer. Um, so 
there's all sorts of ways in which you can design cities to be more inclusive and it's a real priority because it has this huge impact on mental health. So really I think that when you think about the restorative city it's not like you can just work on one of those pillars and, and, it's, and it's sorted out, it's more of a network of, of effort and I think that when we've looked at the thousands of studies that we have then there's certain things that, that have emerged, psychological processes that can be really built into the city. One of them is fascination. So to what extent does the design of your city, you know, spark your interest and your wonder and your, your curiosity? Another one is compatibility. Like cities need to be a good fit with your needs. This concept of being away, so a sense of escape from the everyday, whether that's, you know, looking over views, looking over nature, um, lifting you out, out, out of the everyday. And then linked to that is extent. So being able to not just feel like you're in your little space and you can't see out of it, being able to look up to horizons and out and away. And, you know, people ask us, what, what are the strategies we can use to make a difference to mental health? So uh, I think that there's lots of things in what I've just told you, mm. but looking at those curiosity and fascination and feeling feelings of being away are a really good place to start. So that's essentially um, what what um, <laughs> what we cover in the book with lots of ideas of how people might go about doing some of those things. Thanks, Leila. It, it, it's a really interesting book, especially with the examples you have of cities that have enacted some of these um, principles. And Hamza, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, as somebody who um, has, sort of, has influence in a city um, and, and has worked to enable young people to have that influence as well. Um, I, I wonder if you, you could tell us what, how that's played out for you, kind of bringing young people in, especially thinking about that sort of idea of fascination and curiosity, which sometimes young people really bring to um, engagement. Um, I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how how their experiences and yours have tried to influence the place that you, that you all live. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think in the communities we live in, Westminster anyway, there's a lot of regeneration going on. And I think that's sort of a word that we hear quite often nowadays. It's sort of a buzzword. It's um, we're regenerating the area. Or we're going to be knocking down these blocks and building new one and improving the community. So for me, it's always about how can I engage with, with young people? Because we, we always talk about young people as if they're unengaged, as if they don't want to take part in local democracy or politics. or is not interested, but deep down, they actually are. And in order to find out how they're interested, is to show them how local government affects them. So in our case, it's uh, the regeneration that's going on. If we speak, I remember, I think one, one example I always use is I was walking home one day from, from a meeting and a young person sort of outside the shop said to me, oh, do you know oh, what those papers are about? Do you know what's going on in, in the area? And I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, is my auntie's block going to get knocked down? Or is my grandmother's block going to get knocked down? Or what are they going to do to the football pitch in, in the estate? And it's sort of, those are the questions that sort of pop up now sort of often. And for me, it's being able to say to them, wait a minute, if you guys really want to find out, then pop along to the meeting. Come along, make sure, make sure that your voice is heard. Make sure that you're not sort of being neglected or ignored um, as a young person. Because at the end of the day, these regeneration projects take 20, 30 years. So they're the ones who actually ultimately are going to be living in, in a world that's, that's sort of created for them. Um, so yeah, for me, it's just about 
But what we do locally is in, in Queen's Park that the water represent is we actually have a community council as well. So community council in Queen's Park, we have the only parish council in, in London. So what that means is that the area is, is split up into even smaller wards. So in Westminster, we've got 20 wards, whereas in Queen's Park, they've got several other wards, which are sort of smaller and sort of done on a sort of street by street basis. Um, and they've got their own sort of elected community councillors. And what that means is that the area has a larger influence and larger say in terms of what happens in their area. So if a block is going to get knocked down or a sports centre is going to be changed or repurposed, it's not going to happen just because the Westminster Council wants it. It happens because the Queen's Park Community Council wants it to happen as well. So it's all that sort of integrated work, you know, making sure that different groups in different areas are all being consulted, all being made aware of what's going on. But I actually heard um, my biggest annoyance with, with local government sometimes is we like to to talk to people and tick boxes and say we, we've, we've spoken to young people we've spoken to this group people this group etc and then not listen to them because then in 10 years time when those blocks are built and those changes are made in the community those same people turn around and say wait a minute we didn't ask for that and by that time it's far too late so it's all what can we do early on to engage for me anyway young people but what can we do to engage local residents what can we do to ensure that they're passionate about their communities if that means making it could be anything it could be making a street wider it could be making turning i don't know changing the use of a road it might be putting a flower shop somewhere it might be putting a football pitch somewhere it, it could be absolutely anything but as long as residents are engaged and are sort of consulted and, and they have the power to make those changes in their community then for me that's a win-win so it's all about advocacy and sort of ensuring that their voices are properly heard thanks Hamza. that's yeah that, i suppose that brings us nicely to thinking about the work that samantha has been doing which you know thinking about Layla's ideas from the books Manthi and sort of Hamza's kind of you know getting residents really involved and engaged in in sort of decisions about their area I wonder if you could tell us a little about the, the work that you've done in Neitchell's in Birmingham. Of course thank you um the community council sound uh, wicked and I'd love to know more about them um in I'll start with a little bit of context um we've been working with a small uh, diverse group of residents in a neighborhood in Birmingham called Neutrals uh the neighborhood is really close to city center it's pretty small um so as a ward it's got about 13,000 people um it's got really diverse population and it's really close by to a lot of changes that are happening in Birmingham so for example HS2 coming on um, the Commonwealth Games happening next year um but for some reason and, and these are the words of, of the residents themselves um Nature's has been kind of left behind a little bit forgotten a little bit for some reason um it just doesn't have the um Kind of investment and attention from political figures from key decision makers um that might really help it to kind of thrive as a as a neighborhood and as a community um and that's partly to do with redrawing of wards that happened in 2019 that means that the councillor doesn't really like physically sit uh, in in neutrals anymore doesn't really you know it's not really about um so when we started this piece of work with them um, one of the things that people really spoke about was wanting to find kind of an alternative means for community voice, for a way to bring uh, different residents together um, to have a bit more of a say on, on the different things that are happening in the place that they live. And so we use something called a citizens assembly model, but we scaled it down to the neighborhood level, which um, introduced a couple of changes, but meant there were some really interesting uh, both individual and community level outcomes um, from it. So Leila, thinking about kind of the, the key principles that you've um, kind of pulled out in, in your book and in, in all your thinking, 
um, the recommendations that they themselves um, came up with after about eight weeks of working together um, really chime with, with all the principles that you mentioned, um, really centering around community, around connection between kind of residents, but also other people that play a role in the neighborhood. So it might be local organizations, uh, politicians, local businesses, whatever. Um, also creating better spaces for people to use them as individuals and as a community together as well. And so there's a lot of alignment there. But then in terms of the outcomes, um, what was really interesting was um, there was a real sense of um, building community power through this process, uh, which is not necessarily something that comes out of your typical citizens assembly um, uh, piece of work or model or approach. Um, but they built this real sense of community power. And what was even more amazing was kind of following these formal clothes of what we were calling the community assembly. Um, they've gone on to really kind of catalyze around that sense of community power. They're meeting as a group on their own now. Um, they're trying to follow up with some recommendations, reaching out to all the different stakeholders that we engaged with uh, through the community assembly. Um, so really trying to make some of those recommendations um, happen themselves, but also connecting the dots between all the different people um, who play a role in the neighborhoods um, to kind of help it uh, be what they want it to be in, in the near future and, and beyond. Thanks, Samantha. I, yeah, I mean, it feels like I, I think that was one of the things that really struck me about about Leila's book was there was how much those principles really aligned with what those residents said that they wanted from their local community and and what they how they wanted it to be for them um Leila, you, you've, you've got some good examples in the in the book of places that are sort of doing some of this um and thinking about you know Hamza's um experience with residents in his ward and and the and the community assembly what what do you think are the sort of the things that that catalyze those places to, to suddenly really to sort of embed the idea of well-being into their design of place. There's a lot about what the people who live and work in those communities actually want and how to empower them to have that voice to be able to say, hey, this is what we want, this is what we need. And you know, there's a lot in the book and there's a lot in all the discussions that I have with with architects, with designers, with planners saying great we've got these ideas how do we get them into practice I think that a key challenge is making sure that you get the demand right and that's the demand from all sorts of levels so first of all of course there needs to be the demand from the people who are commissioning and paying for um, whatever this new development might be uh, quite often people will not necessarily put mental health and well-being at the top of their list of things that they want to invest in. They might do, but around the world, um, over and over again, I hear that that's not the case. Um, quite often, you know, the priorities might be um, how much money will we make from this, for example. Uh, and if you're going to go into health, then potentially um, is there some kind of physical health benefit? Or is there at least not going to be a physical health problem? I mean, before you even get to whether it might benefit health so then by the time you get to mental health people some people might not have that as a priority is what we often hear so I think that there's a, there's a bit here about making sure that the people who are um who are commissioning and who are involved in making these um new developments whatever they may be happen actually do recognize the priority and the benefit of mental health um investment in terms of 
productivity in terms of, um, you know, a prospering, thriving community. Um, I think then that there needs to be really good engagement with the people, as I said, who, who are uh, using these places to make sure that we get it right. And in the book, I talk about lots of different ways of people doing that. You can do a survey. A survey only does so much. You know, the deeper you go into engaging with these people, not only will you get a better product because it's more suited to the people who are going to use it, but actually the processes of being able to empower people to um, have a say and see that their say is actually making a difference to the overall decisions is really important in itself for people's mental health. So I think that there's there's a lot of opportunities there, but um, if I'm going to if I'm going to sum it up in one word, I think that word would be demand. Thanks. Yeah, that I think that's. And I'm thinking about Hamza, your you know the work you're doing in your ward, and that that sense there that you know people have a say. Um, I'm think I'm wondering sort of in light of of you know COP26 and the impact the pandemic has had. It feels like that sort of sense of urgency of how our neighborhoods and communities are kind of shaped and set up feels even more pressing. And I'm just wondering how that has played out in, in your local area and, and, and what people have felt, uh, you know, that, that sort of demand, like Leila says, is that become more uh, prevalent really? Yeah, I, I think as, as things start to become topical in the news and as a sort of different subjects start to become more relevant, residents are sort of more engaged or not, you know, it's just, it's like a different level of engagement because it might be, like I said earlier, it might be sort of little questions that they ask. So in Queen's Park, for example, it might be, um, can we get more cycle hangers for, for the bikes or can we get, um, I don't know, is there more green space for a lot of people surprisingly have sort of dogs and cats in the world, a huge amount. So a lot of them would say to me, oh, can we have more green space or can this section of the park be used for dogs, for example, which it is. Um, but residents have an interesting way of how I've sort of learned anyway of, of wanting to be engaged. It's not, the, it's, it's the, you have to sort of engage with them in, in a way that isn't demeaning or sort of patronising or, or, or looking down. It has to be in a way which they feel empowered to make a change. They have to feel as if they're able to speak up. So if we have a public meeting about maybe a huge change that's going on in the area, we can't expect residents to roll through and, and start asking us all the questions. A lot of the time they'll come and maybe be a bit quiet, not really want to engage. So it's sort of a little back and forth to get them up to where they want to be. Um, and what I've experienced in Queen's Park anyway, it's just, I don't know, I, I don't know maybe I'm being a bit biased towards my area, but Queen's Park has a really nice sense of, of community. It's one of those areas where you can walk on any street and Obviously, every every little bit has its problem, but everyone everyone knows everyone. Everyone's happy to get along. If if I don't know if if a bin is isn't taken away properly, then you've got residents on the whole street <laughs> calling me up and saying to me that bin hasn't been collected on, on this number. Blah blah blah. Um, so it's just yeah, I I just think in terms of after after COP and, and what's going on at the moment, I think it's, it hasn't hasn't necessarily increased it, but it's it's kept it there. It's kept the interest there, especially on green stuff. Green stuff now. Is, is, is really topical. People say, you know, we're going to have more charging points, for example, or by electric cars, etc. And the only thing I can wish is that they were more affordable. I wish that electric cars were more affordable so that residents could access them a lot easier. Or electric bikes, for example. Um, we've had a whole sort of shenanigans with the electric scooters recently as well. And that's sort of up in the, up in the air at the moment as well. Residents, young people especially, I'm not sure, are they allowed to use them? Are they not? Should they be using them? Is it better than getting in the car and driving? So these are sort of little community questions that 
hopefully we can get the answers to. Um, but yeah. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Hamza. And Samantha, I was thinking about that kind of, um, you know, the demand idea and sort of giving people permission. And that felt feels quite resonant for what happened with the community assembly. And um, just thinking about that idea of, of, you know, the sort of urgency of, of, of what residents want and if, I suppose that it feels slightly different from Hamza's because obviously he's obviously a really active local um, politician, um, but that was very different for Nietzsche's. And I'm just wondering if that, I wonder if that shift in their voice being heard, what that might mean for them. Yeah, I mean, firstly, if anyone wants to get in touch with them, highly recommend a very ready to go group of residents how the different ways that people engage and, and accommodating that is, is really important. You know, like we, when we started working them with not so much of an idea of what will come out of it, but just an idea that, you know, let's take up this opportunity um, with a really engaged group of residents who, who do want to make a positive change. And the outcomes that came out of it were not necessarily the outcomes we thought it would, but that didn't matter. And we really had to like flex around that um that was kind of our role to facilitate to help hold that space but to really let them kind of lead on how they wanted to engage with that space and how they wanted to put that out into into the wider neighborhood and, and work with other residents um and i think it's just about finding all those different ways that people can participate that people can have their voice heard um and understanding that it won't be the same and that it's a lot of work <laughs> for for it to work in general um, with um, a whole, you know, there are so many different people that live in one single neighborhood. You're never going to achieve it, um, achieve like participation unless you have lots of different options and make them as flexible as possible. Um, and in terms of, of where next with, with the process, which like I said, the community assembly formally came to an end, but the process definitely hasn't like ended. Um, it's very much the start of the process. Um, you know, they're doing all sorts of things. They're reaching out to their local council. They're reaching out to um, people in HS2. Um, they're trying to constitute it as a group. Some of them have become RSA fellows so they can access our catalyst fund to start kind of their own social change um, projects in a local area. Um, so I think it's really just a starting point. And it was really, a lot of them said it was an opportunity for a group of people who wouldn't have necessarily come together to come together. Um, around a shared purpose, around a shared kind of investment in, in making positive change. Um, and that space was really all they needed to get going. Um, and like you mentioned, it wasn't a space that had been, couldn't in the context be facilitated by maybe kind of the, the councillor meetings that you hold, Hamza, um, council-led consultations, things like that. Um, so it was just an alternative. and. People clearly um, wanted that space. They jumped on it, and they're doing amazing things. That's great. Thanks, Anthony. I'm just wondering, Leila, in 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 the um, in the examples that you cite in the book, it, I, I suppose it, it really feels like there's lots of kind of cogs in the machine to get these this sort of different way of a city being designed and planned. Um, and I'm just wondering how that how that has played out for, for sort of, you know, the residents in those cities, the councils, when those changes happened, did people start to see, oh, actually you can design wellbeing and mental health into how our, how our places are? 
yeah I think there's a lot of complexity to that to that um, implementation of um, of mentally healthy design um, so for example if you think about uh, pedestrianization of um, shopping streets so the research tells us that doing that will um, very often increase footfall and um, and business to the local shops but um, very very often when that sort of a change is proposed then there will be a bit of an outcry from shop owners who are concerned that the opposite might happen uh, so another example is um, the challenge of creating walkability in most places where cars are king and there's a bit of a battle for every inch of, um, of tarmac that might be used for, for a non-car purpose uh, very often those 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 um those battles can rage on for years. Uh, but what I think, for example, COVID has given us, which has been really interesting, is the opportunity to make some pop-up changes to, um, to cities. So for example, um, where I live, there has been widening of paths, for example, more uh, temporary bike lanes, uh, the sorts of things that facilitate active um, use of the city. And I think that having been able to implement these on a temporary basis is showing people that actually it hasn't uh, ruined whatever they were worried it was going to ruin and in fact it has potentially made the place a better place to live and work for its its residents so i think that there's there's a bit of evidencing that is really helpful where it can be done um, and of course learning from where it's happened and happened successfully in other places I think we always need to be very careful not to make an assumption that because something worked well in a particular location, it's going to work in your location. Every community is different and has different needs. But um, I think that combining the evidence of what's worked in other places with um, what your community is telling you that it needs, and of course, you know, following up on that to make sure that it is working is, is a really good way of going forward. But there are so many people who have to approve any change. I mean, you have to approve it, you have to design it, you have to fund it. Um, it's, it's a huge process, as we all know. So really, I think that the more evidence that you have, whether that's evidence from the science, whether that's evidence from your neighbours, whether that's evidence from the community, um, the more evidence that it is needed, wanted, and is going to deliver the desired effect um, is important. But I think that that question of the desired effect is important as well, isn't it? Because it's a question of what do you want to achieve from this? Uh, and I think that that can help you uh, go in the right direction. And putting what do you want to achieve, actually, community mental health and well-being is a pretty good priority to want to um, to add to the mix. That's great. Thanks, Leila. Um, Samantha Hamza, just thinking about that, um, that, that Leila said, any, any thoughts for you having had that real engagement with people, um, that sort of any things that you've noticed that have come about because of some changes that have have happened as a result of a, pan, a global pandemic that, you know, we wouldn't have thought would have had a positive impact on well-being, but strangely has had in in weird ways. And I'm just wondering if there's any examples that you, that you've seen um, where that's benefited your community. Sorry. Um, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Uh, uh, cool. Um, I think the pandemic it's been quite interesting you know I'm not going to say it was I'm not going to say it was too fun but for, for, a, lot of, for a lot of people it, it just provided an opportunity to sort of 
space out of it and sort of just settle down and, and, and shut off a little bit from what was going on in their lives, um, especially their working lives, because it just meant, for example, the ability to work from home. It, it's something that maybe two years ago people would have thought, oh, how, how, how dare you work from home? It's not something you should be doing. You should be in the office all the time, blah, blah, blah. But now it's sort of most organisations, most charities, even the council, they, they have that sort of ability where you can maybe do a sort of 60, 40 splits, so maybe a couple of days in, a couple of days out. And that's become completely normal now. And that's sort of, with or without COVID, that's something that's going to last. That's something that's going to, even today, for example, we're doing this on Zoom. It's something that we have the ability to do and it's accepted because of what's going on sort of thing. And it just, it makes life a lot easier for a lot of different people. Um, locally in Queen's Park, we've seen that people have, I don't know, have, have treasured their, their community a bit more. They're, they're a bit more wary of what's going on. So we've got a little, so example, on the trees and the little, around these trees, people go and sort of plant little flowers now and the sort of community little pots everywhere. And, and, and this look, makes the area look a bit nicer. They might put, I don't know, decorations every now and again in different places. And we had last week, we had a, a brilliant fireworks display that was sort of carried out by the community council. And it's just made people feel a bit more together. It's made them appreciate where they live and actually pause and, and look up for once and sort of recognise, wait a minute, this is, this is the community I live, this is the community I've grown up in, or... This is where I've been for God knows how many years. And it's just, I don't know, it just feels a bit more, we're able to appreciate what, what we didn't realise we had uh, before, which is quite nice. Great. Thanks, Hamza. Samantha? Yeah, I think, um, trying to bring it back to the community assembly, um, I think one of the things that people really appreciated was very split opinions on this right but that being able to function online and and the different benefits that have brought and a lot of people did you know really highlight it that they wouldn't have been able to um to engage like this if, if we hadn't been online and they wouldn't have been able to meet the their neighbors in this way if, if we hadn't been doing it online um so i think just creating different ways to connect um encouraging us to think about how we connect to people we want to connect with as well you know picking up the phone to people more often go spending more time with them outside um exploring the little you know someone said to me that they they never really in neutrals there's um, like a canal that flows through it um and that they'd never really walked along that canal until um until the pandemic hit um, and then one of the one of the recommendations or kind of asks from the community assembly was having kind of just nicer spaces, better maintained spaces. Um, and I saw on the Facebook group that they started that uh, someone had uh, gone to a local organisation, asked for some equipment to go and clean up um, some of the rubbish along the canal, which they'd never really thought of doing. And I think blue spaces is quite interesting as well in, in the context of cities. Like uh, I think more and more as, as the pandemic happened, we really understood um kind of our ownership of or our right to access green spaces but i don't know if that's kind of happened around blue spaces as well reflecting mm. on my own personal experience i've just moved from east london to west london east london the canals are you know they're crazy like chaotic so much like different um activity going on around them and i've moved to west london and we have exactly the same type of kind of canal uh setup infrastructure and people use it, but it's got a completely different purpose. It's it's nowhere near as busy. You know, they don't have the houseboats and and the barges with bars on them and stuff. Um, and interestingly, I think the one thing that didn't come out in the recommendations from the community assembly were recommendations around blue spaces, even if they did, you know, go and um, work with local organisations to start picking up rubbish along the canal. Um, so I think 
different ways to connect, different spaces that we can use and make the most of are two really like positive things that have come out of the pandemic. Yeah. Thanks, Manthi. Um, I'm conscious that we are running out of time, um, but this has been really interesting. And just, I think for me, just that connection between sort of the theory behind your book, Leila, and the practice examples that you have in your book, but then also sort of really getting down to those local levels, like, like Hamza's ward and the the community in in uh, Birmingham, how people are, are sort of doing some of those things themselves and identifying some so that kind of real micro influencing and design. It's really interesting how it you know that multi multi layered way of of improving our cities um, can happen. Um, I'm sad that we have to draw it to a close there, um, but I'd like to say a huge thank you to um, our wonderful panel, Hamza, Leila and Samanthi, for their insights. And um, I, I've discovered another small community that I now need to visit. So I'm going to go and visit um, Hamza's ward in, in London, just like I want to visit Nietzsche's in Birmingham. Um, and because I, I just think they sound uh, really wonderful places. And thank you so much, Leila, for telling us about your book. Um, to those watching, I would really recommend um, getting Leila's book to read, Restorative Cities. And um, we'll drop the details in the chat. Look at that beautiful cover. Um, and you can find it on our RSA events page as well. Um, Samantha's report about the um, project in um, Nietzsche's will be coming out soon. And if you love a little bit of community action, go find those guys on Facebook as well. They are quite an inspiring bunch. Um, we've got lots of other wonderful events coming up soon. So please do look at our events page, follow our uh, social media channels to see those and look back at the back catalogue. There's a, a wealth of, of wonderful events in there, which are really interesting and stimulating. So I'd like to thank all of our wonderful panel and all of our wonderful guests who um, I'm uh, hoping will have been um, commenting and tweeting about um, our discussion today. So um, I'm going to let you all go and hope you all have a wonderful day and enjoy your local spaces and improve your well-being. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.